Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley. I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon, and we are attorneys at NFP in the Benefits Compliance area. And we uh, bring different topics to you um, to address what's happening in um, either the federal level or the state and that impacts employee benefit plans. And today we're going to get back to the basics and we're going to address a few new pieces of guidance from Congress and the IRS, as well as some state reporting reminders. So Chase, let's just jump right into it and start with guidance from the IRS. Yes. And thank you, Suzanne. It's good to be back on the podcast. And the IRS here, everything is going electronic. And so uh, no more paper. And that's what we're talking about with this piece of guidance from the IRS No more paper is good for our tree-hugging friends, but it's going to wreak some havoc on smaller employers, uh, I'm afraid. But let's, uh, as background, on February 23rd of this year, the IRS published some final regulations that really expand which reporting entities, when we say reporting entities, we're talking about employers in this context, which ones have to file electronically rather than on paper. And so this really applies to a number of tax returns, including forms W-2, 1099, and uh, 1094-B and C, and 1095-B and C, and 5500. So some, um, some real impact here for employers with their group health plans. I'm thinking primarily of 1095-C, which is what most employers have to file, um, and then smaller uh, employers that self-insure would probably be doing that via 1095B. But this begins with the 2023 year uh, reporting. So that would be due in 2024. So we're really talking about next year. Um, but all entities that have to file 10 or more such returns are going to be required to do that electronically. That's a significant change from the current threshold of 250 returns. Um, and then there's some aggregation rules that that come into play but really dropping the requirement to file electronically from uh, previously at 250. If you were filing less than 250, you could go by paper. And now it's saying only those that are filing less than 10 returns can file by paper. But I thought there was an IRC provision that said that the IRS couldn't require electronic filing unless the employer was filing a higher number of returns. Yeah, so previously there under code section 6011, if anybody's tracking this, <laughs> the IRS was uh, prohibited from requiring the electronic filing of returns unless the filer was required to file that uh, at least 250 returns during the calendar year. Um, so Treasury and the IRS issued regulations that required a person to file information return electronically. Um, in a calendar year, uh, 250 or, or, or more, and that applied separately to each type of information return. And then what really happened is back in 2019, Congress enacted a law that changed that and basically authorized the IRS to issue regulations that would decrease that from 250 to 10. So this has really been in the works since 2019. And in 2021, there were some proposed regulations published Uh, that was sort of going this direction. And now here in 2023, we really get the final regulations. And so it's that congressional prompting 
that yes, Congress can change the tax code, right? Uh, the IRS is kind of bound with what Congress has said and bound by what's in the tax code. Uh, but now with 2019, we have Congress changing that, decreasing it. Uh, and now the IRS is sort of taking that prompting and, and making that change. So I imagine this is going to have, uh, you know, a significant impact on smaller companies. Yeah, exactly. So many plan sponsors, and again, we're talking about employers and, and other filers that are, aren't currently subject to mandatory electronic filing are going to be ensnared. I use that word ensnared because it's going to pull them right in, right, um, by the new regulations and be required to file those returns electronically. And um, so that's going to make it difficult for, for these smaller companies to avoid mandatory uh, electronic filings of these returns. So um, walk me through which forms or which returns we're talking about right now. So let, go into that a little bit more, if you would. Yeah. So um, I mentioned some of those up front with the W-2s and the 1099s. We're really focusing on 1094 and 1095Cs and 1094 and 1095Bs. So um, larger employers, and, and again, we're talking, when we say large here, we just said 250 under the ACA employer mandate, when we say large employers, we're talking about anybody with over 50 employees. And so that's a big difference there. So large employers are those with more than 50 or 50 or more employees, including equivalents, and they have to complete 1094 and 1095C uh, to report on whether they've offered coverage and whether that coverage is affordable for their full-time employees. Similarly, I mentioned uh, smaller self-funded uh, employers, and that would include level funded plans, they would usually be required to file a 1094 or 1095B. And again, their obligation under this mandate is to uh, report on anybody who's covered under their plan. And so the idea here is that some employers that were subject to the mandate would have been filing by paper in the past, right? And so uh, anybody under 250 may have just decided to file this by paper, and now they'll need to figure out how to file electronically. Again, this is gonna start next year. It applies to 2023 filings. We're sort of always working in arrears. Um, but the big challenge here is that filing with electronically with the IRS means going through their uh, filing systems that they've set up, and this is known as the AIR system. Right. It's complex. And, right. and, and typically, employers have been con contracting with third-party service providers to do this. And so this is likely going to increase the cost and the time it will take these smaller employers to file their forms. Um, the preamble to the final regulation here from the IRS uh, says that the IRS expects to attempt to reduce administrative costs by releasing the information returns intake system. Um, that's like the portal that you go through to file, but it's really unclear how effective that's going to be. And so, again, it's just going to be a challenge for these uh, smaller employers to, to figure out how to work this system. Vendors are out there, so that's an option. Um, but again, increasing the time that, uh, and, and intensity. And we, got, we know that so many HR and benefits departments within companies are already overwhelmed. And so this is just kind of another challenge. So, I mean, that's at, that's at the federal level. And we've certainly been hearing of states that are requiring an individual mandate mandate related filing now. And it seems like there's more and more of those. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah. So we are talking about federal. Obviously, the IRS is a, is a federal law and relates to federal taxation. And they're the ones collecting the federal forms. Uh, but there are several states to keep tabs on now with respect to annual filings. 
And those generally relate to the, that state's individual mandate or a similar requirement for residents of the state to have coverage. Uh, on this level, there are six states that are in play, and some of them are kind of the usual suspects uh, when it comes to additional compliance obligations, but those include California, Washington, D.C., Massachusetts, New Jersey, Rhode Island, and Vermont. So if you are an employer with employees in these states, you may have a filing requirement here. Uh, these are pretty similar to the federal filing, but we wanted to mention them here because, you know, employers are going to be going back to revisit filing 1095C. Um, in these states, it may be the 1095C that you just file with the state. And in some cases, if you file it with the state and you just, you've already distributed the 1095C to the employee, um, that can satisfy the state requirements too. Um, so really, let's look at the dates really quick for the distribution to employees. And again, this is either a 1095C or whatever form the state is requiring. The due date may have already passed in those states. Uh, the latest was March 2nd. And so you want to check and make sure that that happened for, for that state. But the, the filing due date, in other words, the requirement to file with the state is March 31st for California, New Jersey, and Rhode Island, and April 30th for Washington, D.C. Uh, Massachusetts was January 31st. So again, you may have to go double check and make sure that happened. But in most instances, again, the, if, you, if you've done what the Fed, Fed requirement is, um, and distributed the 1095B or 1095C, that's probably going to be sufficient. It just depends on the state, but definitely worth looking into this if you're an employer with employees in one of those states. We do have a very helpful publication on this, and that descri uh, describes each state's requirements, how to file, which forms to file, the dates, all of that. So reach out to your NFB consultant for a copy of that. Yeah, and I know a lot of the a lot of times the question is when you talk about employees located in the state with um, you know with COVID and everyone uh, working remotely now is that typically relied on where they're working or where they're where they're residing? And I don't know if there's a standard on most states how they view it or if it's uh, if it there tends to be some similarities. Yeah, on this one, it's when we talk about leave laws, we're often talking about work location, but on most of these state individuals, it applies to residents. So I think it does get back to where they reside, which is another great point and can be confusing for employers, right? Trying to figure out these state nexuses. Where is my employee working? Where is my employee living? In this case, it may be where they're living. Um, so it may be a different way to think about it. So let's now get back um, to some of the federal issues. You mentioned something before about the IRS um, doing some additional publishing. So what else <laughs> What else do we have here as uh, we're getting from the IRS? Yeah, the IRS also published the indexed amounts for the employer mandate penalty payments. So this is kind of an annual adjustment to those the penalty A and penalty B. Quickly, penalty A applies where a, a large employer and again, we're talking about 50 or more full-time employees or equivalents, um, does not offer minimum essential coverage to at least 95% of their employees. Uh, for 2024, those are the numbers we got uh, from the IRS here. Penalty A is going to be 2,970. Penalty B goes up to 4,460. Penalty B is that uh, penalty that applies if you miss the affordability or the minimum value thresholds in your offer of coverage. So we see those numbers continue to creep up. That's just kind of how they were built when, when the ACA uh, came online a decade ago. Um, but that can be a risk for employers that may have strategies to either make coverage unaffordable. We've seen that where 
an employer just decides, well, we're going to offer coverage, but we're not going to make it affordable. And then you risk the employee waiving your coverage and qualifying for a premium tax credit in the exchange. That would be penalty B, uh, but it's just good to, to be able to know the numbers and, and be able to sort of quantify the risk. Uh, and then some employers may take the, the strategy of just excluding a group of employees altogether, right? And risking penalty A, uh, which is a big risk, but now you can at least, qu again, quantify the dollar amount of that penalty, and that can help weigh your strategies here, whether you want to continue um, what, you, what you're doing or whether you're making coverage affordable. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we do expect to see these go up each year, so that's not a big surprise, but we do continue to see those 226J penalty letters. And so mm -hmm. um, whether that's a strategy or not, it's important to know what the penalty amounts are. But um, anything else going on related to this? Yeah. Well, sticking with the employer mandate, there's always questions on how to handle benefit eligibility during a leave of absence. And we know that if the leave of absence is paid, the employer has to continue offering coverage to an otherwise full-time employee. And that's because um, the employer mandate rules say that an hour of service, when you're counting whether somebody's full-time, which is again, 30 hours or more per week, an hour of service is an hour for which an employee is paid, even if they're not actually working. So we kind of have that out there. Uh, we know there's already some benefit protections under FMLA and for certain leaves. And there's also benefit protections under state PFML. So you'd have to keep the, the benefit offer going anyway under those laws. Um, but Congress has introduced a new bill that would protect benefits during an employee lockout or for participating in a strike. Mm. So not that common of a scenario, right? But an interesting indicator from Congress that they're really thinking about this. This bill was introduced by several Democratic House members uh, primarily representatives from Pennsylvania and Ohio. You see some of those uh, blue collar states sort of leading the way, but there are at least eight House Democratic co-sponsors, co uh, which seems to give it a little bit more weight. Um, again, this is just proposed just in sort of a committee in Congress, uh, but the bill provides that if an employer alters or terminates an employee's coverage in a group health plan during a lawful strike or lockout, the employer will be fined $75,000 per offense during a lockout and $50,000 per offense during a strike. And then those fines can be doubled for repeat offenses within a five-year period. So, um, and, and each employee whose plan is altered or terminated during a strike or lockout constitutes a single offense. So this is some serious dollar amount penalties, right? So we'll see where this goes. Um, I just thought it was interesting to hear what Congress is contemplating uh, particularly when it's directly aimed at group health plan coverage, especially when, you know, you already have this employer mandate in place that sort of mandates coverage. Right. Be another interesting, another interesting twist. Well, and I wonder without bipartisan support, if it has any legs in a Republican led uh, house. So right. it may, it may be dead in the water at this point, but, True. Um, but maybe they'll find some other co-sponsors on the, on the other side of the aisle. Um, but, right. but interesting, always good to keep up on anything that's happening in Congress that could impact employee benefit plans. Um, anything else you'd like to tell us before we close out, Chase? No, I think that's it. Just uh, always on our toes and always uh, trying to see what's what's happening so that we can uh, digest this and get it in front of employers and, and help guide them through it. It's so much. But yeah, thanks for letting me talk today. Thank you for joining us today. And as we like to say on the podcast, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks again for joining.